Welcome to Creation Training Radio and TV. I'm your host, Mike Riddle, the founder and president of Creation Training Initiative, where our, one of our goals is to help train others with the knowledge about the Bible, about science, and the communication skills so that they can turn around and start training others and be effective teachers about God's Word with confidence. You might even consider having us come to your church and hosting one of our courses, such as our basic creation training class, which is for teens and above, which gives them the background knowledge they need to help defend God's Word and refute the teachings of evolutionism. Or you might have us come and do our teacher training class, which is based on how the Bible says we should be teaching. It is a great course for Christian school teachers, Sunday school teachers, and anybody that wants to stand up and train others about God's Word. Well, today we're going to be starting part two of our topic, Genesis and End Times. In session one, we covered two of our topics. Number one, we covered Revelation in under five minutes. And our second topic was understanding numbers in the Bible. We gave you tools for understanding numbers. And we found out that when numbers are used in the Bible, they have a very plain meaning. They mean what they state unless there's something in the language that specifically says otherwise. And we also introduced our theme of our topic, theme of our talk, and also a theme of the Bible called Paradise Created, Paradise Lost, Paradise Restored, and it all points to Jesus Christ. Now, our second session here, we're going to cover the three remaining topics, and they are tools for understanding language in the Bible, then an incredible beginning, and finally, an incredible ending. So our topic three in Genesis and End Times, tools for understanding language. How are we how will we interpret end times? How do we understand the language used in the book of Revelation? Well, one of the tools we have with us is something called hermeneutics. Now, what we're talking about in hermeneutics is understanding context, looking at words and the context they're used to derive their intended meaning. In other words, hermeneutics means the interpretation of written language. It is a method of interpreting Scripture. And one of those methods, again, is called context. Now, the Bible is written in many styles of writing. It's used such as narrative history, poetic, parables, figures of speech, and so on. Now, a popular question that might come up regarding the Bible, and I've been challenged with this question, is do you take the Bible literally? Well, quite often that is used as a trick question. Now, what do I mean by a trick question? Do you take the Bible literally? Well, if you say yes, that's really not quite the right answer. But if you say no, that's not quite the right answer. So you need to answer this with some information. See, the correct answer is this. The Bible is written in using different styles of writing, such as figures of speech, parables, even narrative, history. But I take the Bible literally where it is meant to be taken literally. That is how we answer that question. So if you say, I take the Bible literally with no qualifications there, you're going to lose the conversation because then the Bible says Jesus is a rock. And is that what we really believe? Jesus is a literal rock? So we have to be careful how we answer questions, especially when we're talking about the language used in the Bible. 
Let's take an example here. In Matthew 23, 27, we read, you're like manicured grave plots. Well, did somebody just call people a grave plot, a manicured one? No, those are the words of Jesus. Jesus is using something called a simile or a figure of speech here, and he's using it to describe hypocrites. In other words, they're like dead people sitting in a, in a plot graveyard. So that's what we mean by a simile or figure of speech. Also in Matthew 26, verse 26, Jesus took a loaf of bread and said, this is my body. Is he saying he is a loaf of bread? No. See, this is a metaphor. A metaphor is a figure of speech in which an implicit comparison is made between two unlike things that actually have something in common. So we have metaphors, figures of speech, similes, parables, and even narrative history type writing. Now, Paul's description, here's, let's take another one. Paul's description of the Christian armor in Ephesians chapter 6, 11 through 17, is what we would call something like an allegory. He describes how Christians should be prepared using the properties of armor. Now, we use figures of speech all the time to provide emphasis or to create some type of an effect. For example, how about this expression? I've told you a million times. Well, we're not really saying we told somebody a million times, but we're expressing something that I've told you many times. So there's something real behind this figure of speech. I'm just using an emphasis here that I really don't want to tell you again. I've told you so many times, I don't need to tell you again. Or how about this one? It's raining like cats and dogs. Now, that again is like a figure of speech or assembly. We're not saying cats and dogs are coming from the clouds, but it's used to place emphasis that it is raining very hard. That's what we mean by figures of speech and similes. And we see those throughout the Bible. For example, let's take Revelation chapter 19, verse 15. And it states, And he himself will rule with a rod of iron. Now, we're not saying Jesus is going to be carrying a rod of iron around, iron around to rule. But what we're saying here is he will be ruling with authority. Or how about Matthew chapter 5, chapter 5 verse 13? You are the salt of the earth. Are we saying people are nothing more than salt? No. Again, it's a figure of speech or simile. In other words, you are to be the example, the Christian example for other people how to live their lives. In other words, you are the light of the world. That's what we mean by you are the salt of the world. Now, in a figure of speech, common words we use to, to help recognize this as a figure of speech or a simile are words as and like. When we see those words, that gives us an idea this is not meant to be taken literally, but there's something real that we're trying to emphasize here. So in a figure of speech, we often see words as and like to indicate this is a figure of speech or a simile. Now they're used to create, words like as and like are used to create what we call imagery or to associate one thing with another to help describe something real. For example, let's take another one we hear. He runs like a gazelle. Now we're not saying this person is a gazelle. We're describing something very real here. We're saying this person is a very fast and maybe a graceful runner, not a gazelle. So we use words as and like to place emphasis or to associate something real.
Now let's look at a figure of speech used in the book of Revelation to help describe something. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, and we read, The first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me. Now we're not saying his voice was a trumpet, but rather it resounded like a trumpet. It was a powerful voice. That's what we mean by a figure of speech. How about this one in the book of Revelation? Chapter 16, verse 15. Behold, I come as a thief. Now we're not saying Jesus is going to come back as a thief. What we're saying is he's going to come back and we don't know when, so we need to always be prepared. He's going to come when we may not even expect it. So again, as a thief means always be prepared. Now let's take a look at another real example today. Suppose you had to describe a creature called a platypus to someone who had never seen one. Now your description might go something like this. And notice the keywords like in here, setting it up as a simile or figure of speech. To describe a platypus, we might state, it has fur like a bear, gives milk like a mammal, tail and feet like a beaver, a bill like a duck, lays eggs like a reptile, sonar like a dolphin, and has poison like a snake. Folks, this sounds like a mixture of leftover parts. Matter of fact, this was so amazing, the first scientist to analyze a platypus thought it was just a hoax. They had never seen anything like this before, thought it was just leftover parts somebody had sewn together. So that's how you would describe something like a platypus to somebody who never saw one. You would describe it using real things that they know to help them understand what this creature really is like. Now, with that in mind, let's go back to the book of Revelation. And again, we're using tools to help us understand the language in Revelation. So I read in chapter 9 of book Revelation, verses 7 and 8, and it reads, The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. Now, we're not saying these were horses, but their shape was like a horse. So we're trying to describe the, what these locusts were like. And since we've never seen it before, we use something we know, a horse, to help us understand what they look like. Then it goes on. On their heads were crowns of something like gold. We're not saying it was gold, but it was like gold. And their faces were like the faces of men. And they had hair like women's hair. And their teeth were like lion's teeth. Now we're not saying they're lions, but the teeth were similar to a lion's teeth there. So there again, understanding the language used in Revelation. John, in the book of Revelation, is describing something very real here, but something he's never seen before. So he has to use language he understands or we might understand. So again, figures of speech. So now we've taken a look at language. That was part three of our five-part topics here. Now... Let's go to part four, an incredible beginning. So far, we've looked at the book of Revelation in less than five minutes, tools for understanding numbers in the Bible, and tools for understanding language. And we've had our theme again, paradise created, paradise lost, paradise restored, and it all points to Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to be looking at now, analyzing parts of that theme. And a key also to understanding the book of Revelation and, I might add, the gospel of Jesus Christ and even the rest of the Bible 
is the, theme, is the book of Genesis. It is key to understanding all of this. So we're going to look at what we call an incredible beginning. And the first two components of our theme, Paradise Created and Paradise Lost, are actually in the book of Genesis. So a major portion of the theme of the entire Bible is in the book of Genesis. Paradise Created, that is in Genesis chapter 1, and it culminates with Genesis 1.31, where God called His creation perfect, a perfect creation. And the second part of our theme is Paradise Lost, and we find this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Now, let's talk about Genesis, since it's a key to understanding the rest of the Bible. There are two reasons why we should take the book of Genesis seriously. Two reasons why we should take it as real historical facts. Number one, Jesus told us to believe what he said. That's a very big key. If we don't believe the words of Jesus, then is he really your savior? Now, what did Jesus tell us? Well, let's go to John chapter 3, verse 12. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now, what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is telling us, if I talk to you about the earthly things, if I tell you about the history and you don't believe that, how will you believe the spiritual things I'm going to tell you? Jesus made it very clear. He understood the Bible's history as real history. How does he know? He's the eyewitness. He's the creator. So we better take his words very seriously. And he told us to take them seriously. And then we can turn to John chapter 5, verse 46 and 47. And Jesus again makes this statement. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? In other words, Jesus is saying, if you don't believe what Moses wrote, you won't believe him either. Now, what, what did Moses record? Moses wrote the first books of the Bible, which includes the book of Genesis. And here's Jesus saying, if you don't believe that, you won't believe him either. Now, a second reason we should take the book of Genesis seriously and literally is because of this. Without an understanding of Genesis as real history, we cannot fully understand the gospel or the book of Revelation. Let's take a look at this. What do we mean? Let's look at the gospel and the character of God. Genesis 1.31 is an important verse for us here. Now, what does Genesis 1.31 have to state? And it says, Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and morning were the sixth day. Notice those words, very good. What does that mean? Well, I'm going to show you those words, very good, mean perfect. In other words, God's creation was perfect. We see this illustrated in other verses in the Bible, that God's works, in other words, the works of God are perfect. We can turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, where it states, He is the rock. His work is perfect. We see also in Psalm 18, verse 30, As for God, His way is perfect. And creation, folks, is the works of God. So what does that mean? When it states in Genesis 1.31 that God's works 
are very good, meaning perfect. Because creation is the works of God in Deuteronomy and Psalm, we saw it stated clearly the works of God are perfect. So if Genesis 1.31 does not mean perfect, in other words, it means millions of years of death and decay, then are we saying the works of God are not perfect? And folks, if His work in creation is not perfect, then are we also implying that the finished works of Jesus Christ on the cross are also not perfect? You see, if we give up one portion of the Bible, what about the rest of the Bible? And see, we've started to make it man's wisdom, man's book, versus the plain reading of God's Word. When do we start believing what it says, and when do we not? So the only conclusion we can have, based on the language in Genesis 1.30, remember we talked about language and hermeneutics, we must take things in context God gave it to us. The language in Genesis 1.31 clearly declares God's work of creation to be perfect, meaning no death, no corruption, no sin, no decay. Folks, that eliminates all of evolutionism right there. It eliminates the whole idea of millions of years of time throughout God's creation because the Bible states His creation was perfect. So there we have it, Genesis 1.31, paradise created. That's what we mean by paradise, perfect. And that is in Genesis chapter 1. Now we turn to the other key verse for understanding the gospel and the book of Revelation. And that is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And it states this, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This verse points out two very important concepts. Number one, the word enmity means hostility, hatred. In other words, there is conflict, which wasn't there before. Remember we had in Genesis 1.31 a perfect creation, no conflict, no decay, no death. But in Genesis 3.15, something has happened. We now have conflict. Something went wrong. Something corrupted God's perfect creation. And folks, it's called sin. And the second part of this verse, we have the first promise of a Savior who will be victorious. All that in that verse. So now we have the second part of our theme of the Bible, paradise lost. So Genesis 1.31, paradise created. Genesis 3.15, paradise lost. Now this takes us to part five, or topic five in our discussion. Part five is called an incredible ending. We just had our incredible beginning now I want to show you the incredible ending. Let's start with the consequences of the rebellion. Again, we need to go back to Genesis, paradise lost. What did we lose? Because we're going to see what we lost is going to give us our incredible ending because we're going to get it all back. So what were the consequences of the rebellion? All of creation is cursed. We have to toil for food. Death to all. We wear coats of skin. The tree of life is denied us. We are banished from paradise. Angels are sent to block our way back to the garden. Evil is everywhere, and redemption is promised. We see all this referred to again in John 3.17, where it says this, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, 
but that the world through him might be saved. In other words, John 3.17 is telling us we need to be saved. Something is wrong. In other words, let's go back again. Paradise created, perfect. Paradise lost. John 3.17 is taking us back to that. We need to be saved from something. So now we get to the last part of our biblical theme, the part we've been waiting for, paradise restored. I want to show you now nine direct relationships between the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation. Number one, in Genesis 3.17, the curse is announced. But in Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, the curse is removed. We're talking about paradise restored here. Nine direct relationships. Number two, in Genesis chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, we have to toil for food. But in Revelation 22, verse 2, we have an abundance of food. Paradise restored. Number three, in Genesis 3, verse 19, death for all. But in Revelation 21, verse 4, no more death. Number four, Genesis 3, verse 21, we have to wear coats of skin. But in Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, we have clean linen, white robes. Comparison number five, in Genesis 3, verse 24, the tree of life is denied because of our rebellion. But in Revelation chapter 22, verse 14, the tree of life is again supplied. Comparison number six, in Genesis 3, verse 23, we are banished from paradise because of our rebellion sin. But in Revelation chapter 22, verse 14, we have entrance into paradise, heaven. Comparison number seven, Genesis chapter six, verse five, evil is everywhere. But in Revelation chapter 21, verse 27, evil is excluded. Comparison number 8. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, angels block the way. But in Revelation chapter 21, verse 9, angels show the way. And finally, comparison number 9. Genesis 3:15, redemption is promised. In Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, redemption is is accomplished. Wow! The book ends, Genesis and Revelation, the comparison, nine direct comparisons. You see, after Genesis chapter 3, the entire Bible is the story of how God will fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15, the first prophecy in the Bible. You see, to fully understand the truthfulness of the Bible, to truly understand the book of Revelation, and for that matter, the gospel, we must understand the book of Genesis. We must treat it as real history. If we don't take the words God gave us, that he created everything in six literal days, and that his creation was perfect, then the rest of the Bible, including the gospel of Jesus Christ, have no foundation. Now we have just covered our five topics. The book of Revelation in five minutes. Tools for understanding numbers in the Bible. Tools for understanding language in the Bible. 
an incredible beginning and an incredible ending. So we started with the book of Genesis and finish with the book of Revelation. Our topic was Genesis and end times. We showed the relationship between these two books, the first book of the Bible and the last book of the Bible. So let's conclude again with our theme of the entire Bible. Paradise created, paradise lost, paradise restored, and it all points to Jesus Christ. Thank you and God bless you. If these lessons had been a blessing to you, you might consider financially supporting the Ministry of Creation Training Initiative. You can do this by going to our website, creationtraining.org. Again, that's creationtraining.org. Your tax-deductible donation of just $20, $50 or more a month, or a one-time gift of any amount will make you an education partner in building an army of Christian educators who can teach the biblical account of creation and train others to be able to defend their faith and be biblically faithful to God's word as it states in 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Thank you.